Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Water feeds Northeast Colorado's corn and wheat fields, creating a booming agricultural economy. But that water is disappearing from the tributaries that feed the Republican River, flowing from the cropland of Yuma County 450 miles through Kansas and Nebraska. In this special episode, we explore the water crisis in Colorado's Republican River Basin. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole, and today I am joined by reporter Adam Reyes for something a little bit different. Hey, Adam. Hey, Erin. Now, you've been reporting this series of stories about wells drying up and decades-old legal commitments looming over the Republican River Basin in northeast Colorado. People there are scrambling to save the river and secure their communities' economies and prepare this region for a possible future without irrigated farming. Now, I hadn't really heard of the Republican River before your series. I'm guessing that's the case for a lot of other people. It's for me as well. Yep. It is such an important story. So I really wanted to devote some time. So where do we begin? So during a visit to Yuma County last December, I decided to drive over to the closest part of the Republican River's South Fork. That's in north central Colorado along the eastern border with Kansas and Nebraska. Right. And what these communities in this region are dealing with really hit me as I pulled on to the dusty road leading to the Bonnie State Wildlife Area, parked and got out right next to the bumpy blue line where my GPS told me the river should be. And? And nothing. No flowing water in that riverbed. Not what you want to see. I followed the dry riverbed as far as my little sedan could handle. Wanting to learn and see more, I had to get in something bigger, so I hopped in Deb Daniel's truck the next day. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Daniel is the river's conservation district manager, and growing up, the Republican River sustained her family's farm. Even with the truck, she struggled to maintain traction at points. So so the thing is, um, if we were to go upstream four or five miles, there's flow. So water still flows for most of the Republican River's 453-mile stretch. Right, like on the North Fork in the northwest part of the county, where it flows all year. But that's just one of three tributaries that feed the main body of the river. All three begin in or flow through Yuma County en route to Kansas and Nebraska. And while the North Fork and the main body of the river are still flowing, the other two tributaries in Colorado, including the South Fork, the one you visited with Daniel, are struggling. Partly because there's such an overgrowth of trees and silt along the riverbed, Daniel says. That it completely disappears. We pass a dilapidated visitor's center, abandoned campsite shelters, and a long unused shooting range before reaching a bridge overlooking the Bonnie Dam and a basically empty reservoir. Yeah, and I've seen the video and pictures you took of the dam, Adam. It's just so striking because the rest of the dry riverbed wouldn't be as obvious to anyone not looking at a map. 
But here the planes fold down into a V-shaped hole that snakes into the back of this dam. There are signs of erosion, a reminder that water once flowed here. The only word I had for it in that moment and still now is haunting. haunting. Out there, honestly. Yeah. It's, yeah, really, it? it's really haunting. This was a, a, a drop spot for a, a, a resting place for waterfowl as they were migrating back and forth. Trains and geese and ducks and and uh, and now it's all gone. Yeah, it's it's really it's really depressing. In 2011, the state drained the reservoir to help fulfill the terms of an 80-year-old compact with Kansas and Nebraska. Climate change, drought, and more threaten the rest of the river. The North Fork naturally sent about half as much water across the Colorado-Nebraska border last decade as it did in the 1960s. Every year, it's going down. We cannot let that completely dry up like this has. In 2017, the six Colorado counties that rely on the river for irrigation brought in nearly $2 billion in agriculture sales. That's significant. Mm -hmm. That is almost a third of the state's total ag production value. It is huge. And as the North Fork flows decrease, the people who farm on these plains stand to lose their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And some are already starting to. The night after my first visit to the South Fork, I stayed at Doc's Bed and Breakfast in Ray. That's the second largest, but still very small city in Yuma County. And I got to know the owner, 60-year-old Joyce Kettleson, as she made breakfast. She was kind and very open about herself and her community, but when we inevitably got to talking about the South Fork and the drained reservoir, her bright demeanor turned somber. Water is just getting less and less. The wells are not as capable as they were. And we understand she was a farmer. She used to raise pumpkins along with her husband, Phil. For about three decades. After he died suddenly five years ago, she tried to maintain the family farm with her son, but... I just could not figure out how to pay the taxes, pay the water costs, pay the insurance, and and make it all work out. Um, It just doesn't support that. And, you know, a livelihood for my son and I. Two-thirds of their farmland was sold to larger farming operations in 2021. Her son manages what's left without her, using the revenue to support just himself and his family. Will he be able to stay afloat on what's left? Maybe, but Kittleson expects it will be tough and says her son has some really difficult calls to make. They also sealed up one of their wells as use costs rose and the water level in it dropped dramatically. Yeah, it's very low. Low river flows are partially the result of water in the ground surrounding it being used up, mostly to irrigate farms. And in turn, groundwater isn't replenished because the river's limited flows and reduced rain can't penetrate and stay in the ground. Exactly. It's a dynamic Kettleson has long been aware of. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the factors you were weighing there were, you know, the water longevity for the community Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. your family's economic security. Right, correct, exactly. How does someone make that kind of choice? You base it on your family's economic security because we want to continue to stay here. But with their well getting so low? I mean, I don't know that it... It ended up really being a choice. It was just like the only way. Making this even harder, Kettleson and her husband saw a similar water crisis unfold while growing up in the San Luis Valley. My parents, at one time, their house well went dry. 
they did not have water in their house. That's scary. (laughs) That influenced the decision to grow pumpkins when they got to Yuma County. Those used less water compared to crops like corn and potatoes. Apparently, it was once a fairly successful operation, too. How did they not go running and screaming from farming after that first bad water experience? There was more than once that I asked my husband, have we lost our minds? (laughs) You know, what what are we doing? But what we had to weigh against was... It was a lifestyle. It was what Phil knew. It was his passion. We both were raised on a farm. We wanted to provide that for our children. Back in the Republican River Basin, more farmers will have to seal off wells like Kettleson did. And it's not going to just be because of an unfortunate lack of water. An agreement between the river's three states requires Colorado to shut down 10,000 irrigated acres by 2024. Kettleson says she doesn't think it's a great solution. But at this point, it seems like it's the only solution. Most of it has to happen near the South Fork. And within the next two years, the River Conservation District is offering to pay farmers to stop irrigating. But just a third of that 10,000-acre goal has been met. I asked Groundwater District Manager Nate Midcap why farmers resist giving up irrigation. I wouldn't call it resistant. I I think they know what needs to be done. The state engineer certainly has a history of uh, proving that he's not afraid to uh, turn off wells to meet compact compliance. A booming market for irrigated crops like corn and wheat over the last two years made it hard to convince farmers to exchange those profits for the irrigation shutoff payments. Last November, the River Conservation District Board voted to double water use fees to also greatly increase the amount they offer to farmers who shut off irrigation. They've known that they've needed to retire them for eight to ten years, but the actual process of getting the fee increased has taken at least nine months. Well, what's been the holdup? People don't like to spend money, right? They want to do their business as cheap as possible for as long as possible. Um, and, and there's human nature to just wait till the last minute until you absolutely have to do something and, and, and we're kind of at that point. In Midcap's spacious office in downtown Ray, giant maps line the walls. Some seem very, very old. Three of the newer ones were... Depicting kind of where the water is sitting underneath the ground. So imagine it like a lake. Um, the deepest part would be the yellow. He points to a large yellow splotch extending from the state's eastern border on the first map, labeled 1975, then to a smaller one on a map labeled 2000, then one on a map forecasting 2028. Um, it will continue to shrink until they either pump it out or find an alternative to get some water in here. That seems a bit dire to me. And yet Midcap, who was a cattle rancher himself, later added he has a lot of hope. He thinks Yuma County can sustain itself on the remaining groundwater for at least another century. But they have to work through the bigger issues of of the basin. Midcap's confident enough irrigated acres will be shut down by the 2024 deadline. But that's not all. Another 15,000 must shut down by 2029. He's a lot less confident about that. Well, after the first 10,000 acres get retired, irrigated farms will see less competition for their crops, which will boost their value. And their wells will likely last longer because they aren't sharing as much. Exactly. But we're between a rock and a sword. There is no other option. That's Republican River Water Conservation District Manager Deb Daniel again. She says if they fail to shut down enough wells by the deadline, legal agreements with the state of Kansas could force Colorado to shut off irrigated ag in northeast Colorado. And we can't let that happen. 
All of it, or just enough to make up the difference? Probably all of it. From the northeast corner of the state to the middle of Kit Carson County. Things could change, but as the law stands now, the state can't just shut down some wells in the basin. If forced to shut down any, it has to shut down all. Wow. Well, that sounds like quite the weight on the shoulders of locals. And some folks I talked to say the local control the state gave this basin is both blessing and curse. Daniel remembers asking when she started working in water there why the state left so many aspects of compact compliance to local control instead of taking charge itself. So, so in other words, you're going to let us pump ourselves dry. And when we do, we have you or us to blame. And he said, yeah, you're pretty much going to have yourselves to blame if you pipe yourself dry. And, and that made me pause a bit at the same time. That just reinforced that we have to do something for us. I love the land, but it ain't my hand that holds the plow. One morning in Yuma County, I traveled north on a pebbled, dusty road almost parallel to Colorado's eastern border. I was heading to a pipeline that is crucial to the legal agreement managing the river across border lines. So this pipeline is on the river's north fork, just west of the Colorado-Nebraska border in northern Yuma County. And for the past few years, Tracy Travis has had the grim task of getting the pipeline running. It's not a job that I would like to have, but somebody has to do it. Travis does this work seasonally, splitting the rest of his time between farming and bus driving. And again, the North Fork is one of the river's only parts in Colorado with consistent water flow. We pump water out of the ground and into a tank, which flows over into a 42-inch pipeline that runs uh, about 12 miles down to the river. It pumps out about 20 million gallons of water daily, beginning in November, usually. It's not a good thing for the people in this area because we're giving our water up. There's a lot of mixed feelings about the pipeline in this area, but to understand why it's needed, you need to know what was going on decades ago in the 1930s. Today, the river is described as not even deep enough to drown in. But in 1935, it flooded, killing dozens. A reporter who was there describes... You see all sorts of uh, devastation and uh, crop damage and roads washed out. I'll never forget that, that day. Up to that point, Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska managed the water in their respective borders independently. After the flood, the states wanted to prevent future disasters. The federal government said it would help with the construction of dams and reservoirs. But only if the states found a way to manage the river cooperatively. After a three-year negotiation, the Republican River Compact was signed in 1943. We'll be back in just a moment with more on the compact and possible solutions to the basin's water crisis. Stay with us. You're listening to Colorado Edition's Republican River Special. Welcome back to Colorado Edition's Republican River Special. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Adam Reyes. So, Adam, we left off talking about the Republican River Compact, which Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado agreed to in 1943. It requires certain amounts of water flow between the three states. And in the decades that followed, Yuma County Commissioner Robin Wiley says... A lot of wells were drilled, and that really increased the viability of irrigated production, especially in Yuma County, but 
throughout our entire basin. He and his family have farmed here since the 1950s. He says it's likely his grandfather and father knew little about the compact until Bonnie Reservoir was built right in our backyard. I think they realized that there was a, a compact signed at the time, but no inclination on on really how it was going to impact us. Even if his relatives had carefully combed through every page of that compact, they would have missed the part that now impacts water users the most because the word groundwater wasn't in the original document. There was no inclination that the groundwater was tied to the surface water. Meaning if water wasn't pulled directly from the river or the ground immediately around it. Colorado assumed it didn't affect the river's flow, which is the primary measurement for compact compliance. That assumption was challenged in 1998 when Kansas sued Nebraska over its groundwater use. And then Colorado got drug into it. That brought all this to the head. The case, like most interstate compact disputes, including the second time Kansas sued Nebraska over the same issue, went to the Supreme Court. In this case, Kansas and Nebraska ask us to settle a dispute over their rights to the waters of the Republican River. The court ruled the fact that using groundwater affects river flows is enough to make it inherently part of the agreement. Colorado didn't officially recognize the connection prior to the ruling, but that doesn't mean the state was treating groundwater as an unlimited resource. Not at all. In fact, a permit system started here in 1965. And I'm pretty proud of Colorado, actually. That's Yuma County farmer Don Brown. I mean, they were still drilling wells in Nebraska permit-free 15 years ago. When we met, he had this giant, tattered, decades-old map spread out over a conference table in his office with a large, transparent disc. Wherever you wanted that permit to drill, let's just lay it right there. He showed me Colorado's process to determine how many irrigation wells they would allow within a given area. Cleo Brown, which was my father, this one was drilled in 66, and that's when he got his permit, and this one was in 62. Colorado predicted that permit system would still shrink groundwater supply 40 percent within 25 years. The bottom line is we're still pumping from it. So it wasn't quite as bad as the state originally predicted. How much water did they actually end up losing in that 25-year span? It really depends. The area around the South Fork lost about 20 percent, while the area around the North Fork lost much less. But keep in mind, it had already been heavily depleted before the permit system was in place. A century ago, Brown's great-uncle Charlie drilled a well here with simple tools and a horse. I visited one of the much deeper, more advanced wells Brown now uses. About 430 feet deep to shale here. Water level originally was probably around 90. Which were all permitted long ago. And he showed me one of the last well applications his father filed in 1972. It was denied. So by the mid-1970s, most people couldn't get a permit anymore. It was over. It was just plain over. Brown also served as the state commissioner of agriculture under Governor John Hickenlooper. He thought a lot about that history during his tenure in government. They, to a large degree, had a lot of foresight. So they knew the day they were doing it, they were mining it, that um, if we were going to mine it, it had to be in an organized fashion to try to stretch it out over a lot of years. Mining is an interesting word choice. Very purposeful on Brown's part, because the state recognized that once the water got used, it would likely never be replenished. So why let people use so much of this resource if they knew they were mining it? That's way above my pay grade, deciding whether you do or don't use a resource. It's really easy to say with our mouths full that we shouldn't be using this resource. But we're the, we eat cheaper in this country than any other country in the world. And so it's really easy to say, well, we don't need this here. 
And then one day we wake up and realize we're hungry. So I don't know where one draws those lines. Ultimately, Colorado State Engineer has a lot of the final line drawing power in this basin. That office manages multiple interstate river compacts. Dick Wolf was in the state engineer position for about 10 years until retiring in 2017. I reflect back on it. I, I, I don't know if there's too much more we could have done differently. As water levels dropped, the interstate agreements forced officials to make many sacrifices. Like draining Bonnie Reservoir on the River South Fork in 2011. I'd have to say that was the toughest one. Of all the hard decisions he made in 24 years of working in water in a state full of water crises. Mm. Well, clearly Wolf didn't want to do this. So why was draining the reservoir helpful here? Well, I could let him break it down. That's hard to explain. Or I could read out and explain the variable and exponent-filled formulas in the compact. (laughs) Well, you know how much I love exponent-filled anythings. Well, I'm sure our audience does too. (laughs) Or I could just heavily simplify it by saying this. Colorado's efforts to reduce groundwater use didn't guarantee the state couldn't fall out of compliance. And around 2010, it nearly did. So the way the compact's math works... Water evaporating from the reservoir made Colorado get less credit for the amount of water actually sent across the border from the South Fork. Ultimately, Wolf says it comes down to this. We can stop the irrigation of the crops out there, or we can, you know, stop the evaporation. Colorado also almost fell out of compliance around that time because of dropping water levels in the North Fork. Okay, so that's why they bought out irrigation wells from a producer to create the North Fork pipeline we started talking about earlier. Yep. It dumps water from those wells into the North Fork right before a measurement gauge at the Nebraska state line. It rings the bell, we always used to say, and helps us in meeting our quantities. At $60 million, Wolf says the pipeline was the most practical, cost-effective option to keep Colorado in compliance. It takes another 600000 to run it every year. It is a little ironic that the problem we got into for compact compliance was because of well pumping, and we're also using pumping from wells to get us to stay in compliance. Why didn't they do the same thing on the South Fork instead of draining the reservoir? There weren't as many high water wells within a reasonable distance to draw the water from. And anyway, Wolf says that pipeline was never a long-term solution, just a bridge to the future. And then there's other decisions that will have to be made. There are a lot of ideas, but a full-formed long-term cure is not yet in sight. Looking over the water flowing out of the pipeline, water engineer Tracy Travis thinks about the wells on his family's farm back in Burlington. When they were drilled in the 60s, they were about a thousand gallon a minute wells, and now they're about 300 gallon a minute wells, so. Those wells are far south of here, where groundwater levels are much lower, and the Republican River's South Fork barely flows. The deepest sections of groundwater are around the very much still flowing North Fork here, so things are not nearly as dire. Then again, Aaron, they once weren't so dire on the South Fork either. I want to take us back to Republican River Water Conservation District Manager Deb Daniels' truck near the South Fork. It was sometimes hard to get her and others to put the compact aside and just talk about the river and what's best for it. I want to see this area survive and actually thrive. We cannot turn our backs on this compact or the really tough decisions we have to make. That makes me wonder if what's best for the river and what's best for the compact are very different things. I was wondering that too, so I asked her. I think that that 
there would be a lot more cooperation between all three states if we could just talk about what's the best thing for the river. But because we're held to the requirements of that compact, um, I don't necessarily think that all of what we're doing is for the betterment of the river. And I asked Colorado State Engineer Kevin Ryan. I don't really have a comment on whether this compact compliance effort overrides that. And Kansas State Engineer Earl Lewis, who notes the agreement requiring Colorado to stop irrigation around the South Fork will almost definitely help maintain flows there. It's probably somewhere in between. Before we go on here, Adam, I want to know what made you decide to cover this. Yeah, I drove the two hours to Yuma last November to join an advisory meeting organized by the local Colorado State University Extension just to listen to agriculture producers. No note-taking, no recording, little interjecting, no story in mind, just listening. And the people there repeatedly listed water supply in the Republican River Basin as a top concern. And that told me that they might see some value in coverage of this. And the core of this rural reporting project is making communities like Yuma County, in this case, part of as many steps of the reporting process as possible, right? Exactly. I want to be less extractive, more collaborative, have the ideas for stories come from the community, not me, and constantly be seeking feedback throughout and after to hopefully build some more trust. And this extends to how we present all of this, too, right? The artists we bought the music from in this episode were both raised and still live in Yuma County. And I'll introduce them to you more deeply in an upcoming story. Cool. Well, the most popular crops grown in northeastern Colorado, especially corn used in livestock feed, these need a lot of water. Adam, is there any way to maintain that economy with less water? Well, there are black-eyed peas. I'm like the Johnny Appleseed of black-eyed peas. That's Jason Webb. This alternative crop is emblematic of both the benefits and limits of the solutions being considered here. Anybody I talk to, we're going to talk black-eyed peas. Webb is a field agronomist with Trinidad Benham, a Denver-based bean seed company. He works in Sterling, a rural city at the edge of Colorado's Republican River Basin. It's just so fascinating on how this plant can be manipulated by water and by fertility, where a lot of other crops can't. He says black-eyed peas not only can grow with less water, these protein-filled plants actually prefer it. Hmm. And Webb has gotten a handful of area producers growing them. I have a lot of growers that would... Hey, I, I would like to replace all of my weed acres with this. Well, this sounds like a great idea. You save water and the economy by filling every acre with black-eyed peas, which I think are delicious. Problem solved, right? Eh, there's a catch. I knew it. We can't put in thousands and thousands of acres, tens of thousands of acres of, of one crop and expect that market to hold up. Not without creating demand on the other end. That demand isn't there like it is for corn and wheat. It could be someday, Webb says, but a lot would have to change. There are other limiting factors, like the fact that some soil types out here can't grow these beans. There's no silver bullet. That's Kurt Sales. His family has farmed in Kit Carson County since about 1980, near the South Fork of the Republican River. We've experimented with a lot of crops, and I guess I have an idle curiosity. You know, everybody would say, oh, you can't raise that, you can't raise that. And I'm like, well, who are they? Originally, they grew corn and wheat, but since 1998, he's tried a lot of alternatives, including... Sunflower, safflower, corn, millet, cereal rye, chickpeas, flax, oats, soybeans. And these are all the dryland versions of these crops. 
So instead of using the large metal apparatus that you see rotating around a pivot to water crops in many of this region's farms, his fields rely on water that's already in the ground or from rain. Right. And for sales and other dryland farmers in the southern part of the basin, not irrigating was never really a choice. They've always lacked. The water. We couldn't find that kind of water. So The crop variety he uses also ensures plants are in his fields year-round, so he doesn't need to churn or till dirt to start planting each season. No-till and year-round planting are gaining popularity among producers, like sales, who say it decreases water consumption, mm-hmm. boosts soil health, and also reduces the need for costly fertilizer and chemicals. It's not the crop by itself. It's the crop in the system. Sales and others I spoke to say many resist changing traditional farming practices. He says these methods can apply to farms that do still have irrigation or might be about to lose it, though he admits it does involve some initial financial risk that not everyone can bear. If I'd have known that I could extend my irrigating By doing these things 20 years ago, I think everybody would say, yeah, I'd have done that. Farmers who quit irrigating. To help Colorado meet that requirement to shut down water use on 25,000 acres of farmland near the South Fork of the Republican River by 2029. Can either turn those acres into untended natural grassland for a higher payout or switch to dryland farming, meaning they can still grow corn and such, but often at a reduced yield. As people work toward these and other solutions, Few are under the impression that things won't eventually change dramatically in the basin, even in the areas that still have plenty of water. Everyone recognizes the fact that we have got to slow down depletions. That's Republican River Water Conservation District Manager Deb Daniel again. Because the longer we can have irrigated ag in this area, the longer our communities will have to uh, adapt to not being able to have irrigation. Ultimately, clearing an easier path to that difficult future mostly falls on the shoulders of the basin's residents. Consequences of their failures or successes will impact generations to come, not just in the basin, but across the state. Before we go, I just want to note how cool it is that you talk to so many people on so many sides of this issue. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that. And of course, in the written version of the stories, there are even more people than the many we heard from here. I do have to ask, though, in the interest of journalistic fairness, mm. uh, did you not try to seek comment from the Democratic Riverdale? No, I, you know, just not really about that both sidesism thing. I think it was about the Republican <laughs> River. So, no, I mean, in all seriousness, let's talk about the river's name for a moment. Does it have anything at all to do with the modern political party? Not even a little bit. Okay. <laughs> it actually comes from European settlers observing a band of the Pawnee tribe who are native to the basin and the surrounding plains and comparing their semi democratic style of government to the philosophy of republicanism. And so they began calling this band, which is actually called the Kitkahaki, Republicans. And eventually that name transferred over to the river itself. Okay, so what did the Pawnee people call the river? According to Longmont-based Pawnee historian Roger Echo Hawk, it was likely called the Kiraruta. The word has two parts, which are somewhat up to interpretation, he says. The first refers to a body of water, and the second, intestines. Huh. 
Echo Hawk says the plains around the river were known for having these huge herds of buffalo, which the Pawnee would hunt as they traveled along the river. They would then butcher the animals and wash their intestines and other organs in the nearby stream. You can translate this word in various ways, but I translate it as dirty water river. The word is a joyous one, he says. It's a reminder of what successful hunts entail. You can find out more about the river's Pawnee history. And a multi-million dollar plan to save the South Fork. And get even more details about the things we did and didn't discuss today, featuring interactive charts, maps, GIFs, and historic documents by checking out the entire series on our website, kunc.org slash Republican River. Adam, thank you so much for your work on this, and thank you for joining me today. It was my pleasure. That's our show for today. This episode and KUNC's Republican River series were reported, written, and produced by my special co-host, Adam Reyes. Brian Larson, Sean Corcoran, and Stephanie Daniel are the editors, with digital editing by Jackie High and Ashley Jeffcoat. Our music in this episode comes from two Yuma County residents, Lazy River by Joey Weyamura and Loveland Pass by Robert Anderson and the Rufus Crisp Band. Republican River flood archive audio used with permission from History Nebraska. This story was produced as part of the America Amplified Initiative using community engagement to inform and strengthen local, regional, and national journalism. America Amplified is a public media initiative funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.